Welcome to the 2020 Baby Podcast. I'm Pamela Douglas, and today I'm speaking with Honorary Associate Professor Peter Hill, academic and public health physician from the School of Public Health, the University of Queensland. Peter has devoted his entire professional life working to improve health systems both in Australia and in developing countries. The challenge for, for me, I, I mean, you're aware that my interests are big health system pitches. Um, and the challenge for me is that we're looking at another epidemic, this time a pandemic. And in fact, this we have known that this pandemic was going to come. Did um, we? That, that's really yeah. interesting to hear me say. Uh, well, can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, in, in public health circles, WHO has been talking about disease X for several years now because we're just aware that ecologically, the way we've changed things in the world, so the the, the way you know the the way we have um, increasingly um, uh, encroached on uh, various parts of our ecology, where um, human beings and 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 wild animals are now closer together as life uh, as like habitats are being destroyed and, and constructed. And in, in certainly in a number of environments, um, and this actually happened this time in, 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 in China, um, you, you've got a situation where the, the, a number of things have come together to create the perfect storm. So you actually get economic development so that people actually have greater economic disposable income. You have changes in... Um, the local environment um, and changes in 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 ways of living in an environment where refrigeration isn't a common um, uh, isn't as common as it is in Australia. You have a mixture bringing together of domesticated animals together with um, animals that are not domesticated. In, in Australia, we've seen this problem with bats, for example. As we um, destroy more and more bat habitats, then they migrate into human habitats. And this was the problem with hinder virus um, and the threat that we see in other environments. So we've got a number of changes that are happening. And in China in particular, um, what they call the wet markets, the problem with the wet markets is that you've got live domesticated animals being brought together with exotic animals that the, the you know that that are not part of our domestic um, um, uh, range, and they're being brought and exposed to each other in the same environment. So you've got the possibility of transmissions of virus between one set of animals that we don't normally encounter and another set of animals, and in this case, it's humans. Um, so we've got uh, we've got economic you know, we've got economic drivers we've got social drivers I mean the other thing in China was that that eating exotic meats is one of the markers of of of, of social progress um, it, it's an indicator that, that you know that that you've arrived in certain ways and that you can afford to experiment with these kinds of foods so. I mean, that's a particular coming together in that particular situation, but we're going to see these 
possibilities um, more and more, particularly with climate change and the other ecological changes that we're seeing over the next couple of years. So we've been expecting a pandemic. Um, there has been a level of global preparation. The international health regulations were revised after SARS, but we haven't maintained the capacity in countries like the US, for example, but globally we haven't retained the capacity. Even in Australia, in certain states, we ran down our public health capacity and now we're, we're really feeling it now. We're in an environment where these kinds of challenges are going to occur. The thing that upsets me is the last time we looked at SARS, the last time we looked at Ebola, the lessons that we learned from those was that our primary healthcare networks were not sufficiently strong and were not meeting community needs sufficiently for us to be able to mobilise a public health response when it was needed and when the, when the epidemic kind of overwhelmed the system. Um, now, And would you see this in Australia? Yep. In Australia, we've had a reasonable primary health care system, but it is built, um, uh, you know, it, it's certainly built on, on a number of structural um, uh, elements that, that have constrained its adaptability and its ability to actually meet uh, families where they actually are. So there are limited, so for example, there is a limited number of health services for which we actually get reimbursement through the government system. Dental care, for example, is one of the areas in which most people cannot get um, um, uh, subsidised access. But it also means that many of the, of the non-professional areas, so sorry, the paraprofessional areas, so yeah, the yeah the those who would support women and their children through crises like these, they also are not part of our um, of the infrastructure for Medicare. Um, and so, remuneration of those supportive mechanisms is a lot more expensive for women who actually access them, and a lot more difficult to access for those who've got limited resources. I mean, the other thing is that relative to our specialists our general practitioners haven't had an increase in their salary relative to the rest of society. So we've frozen the government reimbursement for general practice um, uh, services over many years, and we're beginning to, to, to find that that makes general practice difficult to sustain as an economic option for, for, for doctors who are graduating. Exactly. So there are a number of things that we need to actually um, begin to play with. I mean, we've prioritised face-to-face contact, for example. We've had telemedicine and it's been operating in some remote areas, but in a very experimental way. Now we're in a situation where close-down is happening. We're actually having to begin to challenge some of those elements and actually rethink how we deliver primary health care to families who are, who, who are unable to front to the clinic um, or for whom it's unwise for them to be fronting to the clinic. So there are a few things that are beginning to happen, but I I think that this will necessarily prompt a revision of our whole health system over time. And the other thing that's being critical to this is that we've, uh, you know, as as with other kind of managerial trends, we've shifted to a just-in-time management system for healthcare. 
so that we don't stockpile, um, we don't um, have great stores, um, we have production that is linked to the actual consumption patterns, and when those patterns change, it's sometimes difficult for us to respond, and we're seeing that with personal protective equipment um, uh, in Australia. And that's been compounded, of course, because of the, of the decisions to stop transportation um, and to, to limit um, um, the, the um, uh, transportation into Australia. So we, we're, we're in an interesting situation. And I think at a number of levels, things are going to have to change. I, I think you're right in lots of ways. The, the, the virus is changing the way our health system is responding and the way we interact with it. Um, there are both positive and negative things that are happening. So one of the positive things, I think, has been the recognition by the government that they need to actually change how uh, families can interact with primary health care, but also with their specialist care. So the introduction um, of uh, telemedicine uh, in more than just an experimental or um, exceptional way I think it's a really important step for that. I mean, that that is not going to go away. This will be a change that we'll see incorporated into our health service delivery. I yes. think the other thing is that we've got a strange situation where much of our medicine has been very, um, uh, very uh, specialist focused, very hospital focused, and the 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 preoccupation of those institutions with COVID-19 is going to mean that we rely on other agencies to actually take up the slack in terms of in, in, inputting into women's lives. And so I think that, um, you know, more uh, when we're looking at um, uh, there's there will be a democratisation of health, if you want to put it that way, that different voices will need to be heard. And for the women that you're talking about in those first 100 days when they're looking after their kids and looking for solutions that allow them to, to, to deal with the negative social and economic impacts of um, the coronavirus, um, that's where, where we may see some creativity. And I think what you're doing at the moment is one of the ways in which that's going to bring about change. So let me... Reflect specifically then on the care of mothers and babies within the Australian health system. Um, we actually have a superb maternal and child health network, if you like, government-funded network operating throughout Australia. It's region-specific, but there's money there and many child health nurses available offering um, free, government-funded, but freely accessible care to mothers and babies. The problem there is that the advice that's being offered, and it's, it's, you know, I've spent many years being very sensitive to, to this from an interdisciplinary point of view. But the problem is that the advice that's offered is very often not evidence-based or behind where the evidence is taking us. And there's certainly a real dominance of the sleep training approaches which has ramifications for how families manage feeding and breastfeeding because of the concept of routines and spacing out feeds in order to do feed-play sleep cycles or at least 
have a sense of structure around sleep during the day. It's an approach that's not aligned with infant biology but can actually prove very disruptive not just to breastfeeding but ironically to sleep because it disrupts the circadian clock and can over time increase night waking for parents beyond what would be normal and you know tiring but manageable infant night waking. We have you know a a government funded system of support for uh, mothers and babies that has for as long as I've been a GP, so since the mid-1980s, been well recognised in breastfeeding circles as providing inadequate advice concerning breastfeeding. I hate to say it, but this is a time of crisis and we just need to get clear about where um, the real uh, problems are in the health system in the way that we're caring for mothers and babies. So we, we also have these behavioural issues around crying and fussing, sleep, breastfeeding problems as a research frontier. It, you know, there's not been a prioritising of research here. So the upshot of this is that parents have a lot of difficulty finding advice that, that, that they feel works for them. We know from the research and we know from just sitting in the clinic day by day how much conflicting advice parents receive and how many health professionals they're going through as they try to get advice and try to sort out what's going to work for them and their baby. It's, it's you know, that the, the inefficiencies in the health system in terms of the care in mothers and babies is just outrageous. We drive up costs at the very time that we, we should be looking at, at um, health system reform and cost-effective primary care strategies. Parents are going from provider to provider. We're offering, quite uniquely in the world, incredibly expensive tertiary residential facilities for families who are desperate around sleep, at the same time as these facilities offer an approach that really disrupts the circadian clock and three or four weeks down the track for many families, can make night waking worse. You know, offering approaches that actually can ramp up family anxiety around sleep. We also have a growing number of um, hospitals setting up mother-baby units. Now, in terms of support for our uh, women who are facing severe mental health challenges, this is superb and a long overdue initiative. But unfortunately, what's happening is that Many of the common problems of um, daily life caring for your baby that are receiving inadequate and ineffective advice from health professionals more broadly are then having to move to the ramped up level of support of admissions. We also have, you know, from a health system point of view, the incredibly expensive parenting centres popping up everywhere now associated with tertiary facilities where a single consultation, let's say, with a GP or a lactation consultant draws down hundreds of dollars from the state government's health budget coffers when that kind of service, if there was consistency of advice, could be offered in the much, much cheaper primary care setting. And indeed what's happening is that these parenting centres that are providing free care within a tertiary setting are actually shifting the care of mothers and babies increasingly into the tertiary setting. It's free for them, but incredibly expensive for the groaning, you know, the, the, the budget of the health system that's, that's 
blowing out, as, as we all know. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website, possumsonline.com, for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the possums programs. As together, we grow joy in early life. I hope you tune in again soon. Bye for now.